Hey, GeoTrekkers, Hurricane Hal here. Welcome to the GeoTrek podcast. Well, it's late April. It's hard to believe it's that time of the year where we actually start thinking about the upcoming hurricane season. As part of that dialogue, the National Tropical Weather Conference meets in person every April in South Padre Island, Texas, to bring together researchers, professionals interested in building better, storm chasers, hurricane hunters, broadcast meteorologists, and meteorologists with the National Weather Service and National Hurricane Center. A lot of practitioners come together in one place to discuss how we better prepare and communicate the risks of hurricanes. I was just there in South Padre Island. This is really one of my favorite, I'll actually say it's by far my favorite conference in the year just because it's bringing so many people together. But the size and the the nature of this conference is exceptional. It's This year, I think we had about 120 people. For the young professionals out there, look for these conferences that have between, say, 60 and 120 people that bring together a diverse group of people into one place. In this type of conference, we're all in the same session together all day, and then we're sharing our meals together. So not only are we getting great information, we're able to really build relationships. And that's something you really want to look for in these conferences and workshops. You can go to the mega conferences, learn a lot of information, but when there's 8,000 people there, sometimes you can feel very lost. At the National Tropical Weather Conference, it's very relational. We have a, an awards night. We have a night where we all go out to eat meals together. Uh, the final night, there are fireworks. It's a, it's a really fun conference, but we also learn a lot because we're bringing together all these people into one place to learn the latest hurricane science, the seasonal outlook for the upcoming year is always provided by Phil Klotzbach with Colorado State University. And there's just a lot of dialogue about how we can better understand and predict hurricanes. Well, hey, another big part of the National Tropical Weather Conference is when Phil Klotzbach shares this seasonal hurricane forecast. This is a long-range forecast looking at likely hurricane activity in the Atlantic Basin for the upcoming season. So he provides that as a live forecast. It really hits the media when he's at the NTWC, the National Tropical Weather Conference. He's predicting a, a near normal or slightly below normal activity season for the upcoming year with 13 named storms, six hurricanes, and two major hurricanes. The long-term climatological average would be 14, 7, and 3. He's predicting 13, 6, and 2. So in a sense, from conversations with Phil, and he's such a personable guy, he's so easy to talk to, really the two main things that are driving that are the sea surface temperatures in the Atlantic. The warmer those are, generally the more active the hurricane season. And the Atlantic and the Gulf, the Caribbean, everything is really run running very warm right now. That would lend towards a more active hurricane season. The other thing we look at are the sea surface temperatures in the equatorial Pacific, west of Peru and Ecuador in South America. We've had several years of La Nina, which is colder than normal water temperatures. That lends towards more active hurricane seasons in the Atlantic. But the models now are very aggressive, bringing an El Nino in by this hurricane season. Most of the models are very bullish with that, very aggressive. And that would tend to reduce hurricane activity in the Atlantic. So it's a bit of a tug of war with warm water temperatures in the Atlantic and also warmer than normal water temperatures in the Pacific. Again, when the Pacific's warm, that's called El Nino, and it leads to more wind shear and hostile environment in the Atlantic for hurricane development. There's a science behind this. They're not just throwing darts. It's statistically derived. 
they're thinking their best guess is probably a near normal or slightly below normal season for the upcoming year. Uh, I got to know Phil a lot better at this at this uh, conference. He's a great guy to hang out with, and he's going to be coming on the podcast uh, um, several episodes from now. So he has some really interesting sor- stories to share with us, and I think we'll get more into the seasonal forecast details then. But just wanted to share, that's one of the big parts of the spring conference is when the seasonal forecast is revealed. And so I just wanted to share with you that update and what we can expect this season. But but keep in mind, if, even if it's a slightly below normal season, it, it may sound cliche, but they always say it only takes one, right? So even if there are less than normal named storms, less than normal hurricanes, if you have a Cat 3 hurricane in your neighborhood, for you, it was a devastating season. So these statistics help us get some idea of what we can expect uh, as far as base and wide. But again, it only takes one in your neighborhood to make it a devastating hurricane season, even if it's a slightly below normal hurricane uh, season as far as activity. Still want to be prepared for that storm because it only takes one in your neighborhood to really impact you. Something new that we had this year that I got to be involved with, I actually got to MC it, was a session for high school students. That was really cool to see students from South Texas there come out and to hear that, oh, wow, they're occupations that I never realized exist existed. They were very engaged, very exciting. We, we had a couple storm chasers and the hurricane hunters there to talk with them, a videographer. They were very engaged and very excited about that. We also had three college students this year that were there on scholarship. So that was really cool to bring together undergrad students in meteorology that are really interested to learn more about opportunities for weather forecasting, but also for tropical weather prediction. Well, if you're interested to learn more about the National Tropical Weather Conference, you can go to hurricanecenterlive.com. That's hurricanecenterlive.com. You can see videos of this past conference, but the really cool thing, and this is, I have to share this story because it's so amazing. When COVID hit, a lot of conferences just said, you know what, we're going to cancel. We're Until you hear otherwise, we're not having conferences. This is amazing. The National Tropical Weather Conference, Alex Garcia and Tim Smith, they and, and Bill Reed as well, they pivoted during COVID on the fly. I mean, COVID really hit hard March of 2020. They were less than a month away from the National Tropical Weather Conference in 2020. They pivoted into making this a video conference that meets every week. And so this is something that's that's really changed the legacy of NTWC. People from over 40 countries tune in. And so things got very virtual very quickly during COVID. And it's really changed the whole nature of the audience and the outreach of NTWC. And the reason I'm sharing this, you can be part of the virtual National Tropical Weather Conference every week starting around mid-May. Just keep in touch. Go to hurricanecenterlive.com. But this is a dialogue with a science panel every week throughout hurricane season that you can be a part of. So even if you were not there in South Padre Island this April, you can be part of the discussion in real time at the National Tropical Weather Conference this upcoming season. Well, this podcast is all about six interviews that I did with experts that were there, professionals at the conference, getting their insights on what they do and why they do it and how, how that can help us better understand tropical weather. So these uh, these six six interviews I think you'll really find interesting. They're generally short, usually five to 10 minutes, but it just brings you there to the conference, gives you some insights for some professionals that were right there, and, and some really interesting dialogue that are going to be part of this podcast right here on the GeoTrek podcast. This is really exciting. We're going to be talking about the hurricane hunters in this first part of the broadcast. You know, Several years ago, I was forecasting coastal flooding in the northern Indian Ocean for a tropical cyclone or hurricane over there, over by India and Bangladesh. I was interacting with a researcher from that part of the world who said, 
You know, our forecasting for hurricanes is not as accurate here in this part of the world as it is for you in the U.S. because you all fly into hurricanes. So the hurricane hunters are pilots that fly into hurricanes intentionally or through the U.S. Air Force, and they do that to collect important data that can help our modeling improve. And it's just fascinating how that really helps our hurricane prediction and uh, helps us prepare here in the U.S. So pretty cool stuff. This first interview is with Lieutenant Colonel of the U.S. Air Force, Ryan Rickert. He shared a lot of insights about the hurricane hunters, what he does, what the hurricane hunters do, and why it's so important. We're here at the National Tropical Weather Conference with Lieutenant Colonel of the U.S. Air Force, Ryan Rickert. Really appreciate you taking some time to do a little interview here. No problem. Glad to be here. It's been a great conference. I know a lot of people loved your presentation on the hurricane hunters. How long have you been flying? I've been with the Hurricane Hunters for uh, close to eight years now. I was uh, active duty for 13 prior to that. Wow, so, um, I mean, did you know grow, uh, growing up, like, this is something you wanted to do, or is it just a path that kind of opened up for you? I kind of didn't really know about it as I was growing up. Just kind of grew up watching the Weather Channel, you know, fascinated with weather. And then uh, as I went to college for a meteorology degree, I just knew that was my passion, and I didn't really know I'd end up here. I... Uh, went to join the Air Force and just did ground support for aircraft. And then I saw a position up, actually when I was young, or when I was a second lieutenant, I had a tour at the Hurricane Hunters when I was at Keesler. And then that kind of opened my eyes to it. I didn't really know there was aircraft reconnaissance of hurricanes and uh, just kind of fell into that 13 years into the Air Force. That's awesome. Ryan, why do we fly into hurricanes? What kind of data and what kind of information are we looking for? And what's the benefit of that? There's a lot of benefits, actually. There's a lot of benefits where there is it's a data sparse area out over the ocean. There's no place, there's no observations, you know, limited observations on the sea surface. And then, of course, there's no in-situ observations in the air. So our planes fly. We fly into the storms. We try to go into the centers. We collect surface winds. We collect flight-level data. And then, of course, one of our most important uh, sensors is the drop-son, which is basically a, a weather balloon that falls from the airplane down to the surface of the earth. Right, on a flight day, I mean, how long, how many hours continuously may you be working if you're flying into a storm that's a little bit far from the U.S.? Yeah, so I would say some of our farthest flights to the storm would be probably be about four hours, four to four and a half hours, and then we'll have maybe two to three hours in the storm and then four to four and a half back. So some of our longest days just flying could be 12 to 13 hours, but that also starts about three hours prior to that too. So some of those days could be anywhere from 16 to 18 hours long, you know, including the pre-planning and then the flight time. Ryan, the hurricane hunters do a lot of outreach and education sometimes in the spring before hurricane season starts, right? Like, how can people find that schedule or find out if the hurricane hunters are coming to a community near them? Well, I would say that um, some of the air shows and the different activities that we participate in um, from April, May, and sometimes into June, um, we try to do uh, air shows that are areas that are impacted by tropical cyclones. So we attended the the Sun and Fun. We try to do that one in Lakeland, Florida, which is about a week long. It's the second largest air show in the world, I believe. Uh, We also participate in the HAT, the Hurricane Awareness Tour, and the CHAT, the Caribbean Hurricane Awareness Tour, every year. So we, um, there are pre-selected locations throughout the Caribbean in April, and then the hat is, goes from either the East Coast or the Gulf of Mexico um, coastal locations every other year. So you can find those, I believe, on the National Weather Service's weather uh, page. 
I want to ask you, so you're, you're primarily based, is it in Mississippi near Keesler? So Correct. what happens if a hurricane's coming there? Are you, do, do they move you to base somewhere else? And then like, what happens to your family? Like, could you share on a personal level, what would happen if unfortunately a hurricane was coming right towards Mississippi? So ironically, it happens quite often. You know, the Gulf of Mexico lately, the last five to 10 years, there's been a lot of times where we have to get our airplanes out of harm's way. And then we also have to continue to fly the mission. So we'll find um, we'll we'll find locations where we can go to that are going to be staying out of the weather, and then uh, sometimes all the other airplanes will go to other locations. But we'll also set up a location where we can continue to fly the storm, and then when that happens, that that rotation will go until landfall, and then of course on the personal level, sometimes we are part of those packages that go fly. Um, in my case, I was part of the Z- uh, Hurricane Zeta, which actually impacted Biloxi pretty significantly. And, uh, you know, it does hit close to home because you come back to destruction and devastation, maybe not nearly as impacted as some of the Cat 4s and 5s that have hit the Gulf Coast. But you get phone calls from your family, hey, the winds, you know, things are happening at our house. So, yeah, that one actually did hit close to home because my back door is actually blown open in the back from Zeta. And my my wife and kids had to, you know, basically brace it shut. So it does hit home sometimes. Ryan, you play such an important part in collecting these data, helping to forecast, and then you you know a lot about hurricanes and their impacts personally. What's one last, you know, take-home message that you'd give to listeners? I mean, uh, basically what we've all talked about during this conference is is really take take heed to the warnings that the National Hurricane Center and your, your emergency managers are are giving you they know what's best i mean i know you know parents know best so that's what i would say is just really heed to the warnings of what they're saying and their emergency managers your your uh your local civil authorities those types of um, people and we're out here trying to help you you know don't think that you can ride it out just because you've never experienced it before you don't think it'll happen Ryan, thank you so much for taking time to do an interview. Great to interact with you at the conference, and I'm hoping for a a safe hurricane season for you and everybody else. Thank you. Me too. (laughs) Appreciate it. Ryan, thank you so much for sharing those insights about the Hurricane Hunters. Really encouraging to hear what you all do. Well, our next guest is actually a close friend of mine, Brian McNoldy, Senior Research Associate at University of Miami. When I lived in Miami back in 2018, moving there, I didn't know anyone in Miami except for Brian. So I had all these books I had to mail to Miami. So he was gracious enough to let me mail them to his office. And I got to hang out and see his office there at University of Miami. He's right there on the water, a beautiful office setting. And Brian really knows his tropical weather inside and out. So it's always a pleasure to talk to him. He was really focused on doing multi-hazard hurricane risk communication. And we talk about that in the upcoming interview. But another thing we talk about are these radar loops. He's compiled, I think, more than 500 radar loops now of hurricanes and tropical storms around the world. That's an amazing archive that doesn't really exist anywhere else. So if you can remember a storm that impacted you and you want to see what the radar looked like, uh, just do a web search for Brian McNoldy, University of Miami radar loops, and you're going to find a tremendous archive there. It was a joy to hang out with Brian at the National Tropical Weather Conference. And here's a little excerpt of our interview that we did poolside at the conference. We're here at the National Tropical Weather Conference with Brian McNoldy, Senior Research Associate at University of Miami. Brian, it's great to have you on the broadcast. Very, very pleased to be here, Hal. Thank you. Brian, you've been doing tropical research for a long time. What's some of the key research that you're doing? I think one, one of the things that I'm most excited about right now is, uh, is a hurricane hazard communication project uh, funded by NOAA. We're working with people at the National Hurricane Center. 
Um, and the, the goal that we were kind of already in in the, the heart of is we're, we're working with um, groups from around Miami and the Miami region, um, asking them what about current hurricane forecast products, like from the Hurricane Center, what they find confusing, what they like, so on. And then also asking them if you could design anything, what would it look like to you to not be confusing and to to, to relate all the, the useful information. And so we're, we're trying to come up with this multi-hazard, uh, big picture sort of thing that people can understand. Well, and Brian, hurricanes throw multiple hazards at our coastline. How do we communicate that to people? Like when it, when it's not just one hazard, but multiple hazards coming their way? Yeah, that's, that is the, the challenge. And that's exactly what we're working on. It's still a work in progress, um, but it's really important to do that because uh, there's so much emphasis gets put on uh, basically just the wind. So is it a category one, category two, which there's so much of, so much about a hurricane that's not described by that single number. Brian, you live in South Florida. There have been some big impacts in recent years, but also a lot of misses. I mean, how do you interact when you talk to locals or just people there in South Florida about their hurricane risk? How should they think about it? I, I'm actually typically pleasantly surprised. Um, I think People in Southeast Florida seem to have a decent awareness. Um, people generally are getting prepared. You know, I, I see people, a lot of people in the stores buying supplies and stuff three or four days out, not the last 12 hours. <laughs> um, most people have pretty well protected homes, you know, either uh, hurricane sh shutters or impact windows and doors. Uh, so pretty strict codes, which is great. I mean, that's kind of what we're known for in Southeast Florida is some of the strictest codes in the country. Um, so I think people are, are generally pretty well prepared as, as well as we can be. Right. I know people really love the radar loops that you've put on the web. This is an archive of radar, hurricane radars around the world that go back pretty far. Could you tell us a little bit about that project that you've worked on? Certainly. This, this is a, it's a very unofficial project. Um, it started about 22 years ago. Um, now that radar loop archive has over 500 radar loops in it from about 30 countries uh, and it just keeps growing. I, when I started it, I had no intention of this ever being a thing, but it quickly became a thing and now I guess there's, there's no turning back. That's great. Brian, great to visit with you here at the National Tropical Weather Conference. If you had one big take-home message to give to people that live along the Gulf Coast or, or Florida or the southeast U.S. that are in these high hur hurricane hazard areas, what's one take-home message you'd give them? Well, I, I think one thing that really was a common theme through a lot of this is, is this um, human nature kind of has a hard time understanding extreme threats. Um, and so but it's to appreciate that it can happen to you, you know, just because it hasn't before. Hurricanes don't come around that often. So, you know, in our lifetimes, we don't have a long history to work from, but that doesn't mean we're invincible. Brian, thanks you so much for sharing your insights. I'm open for a safe hurricane season for you and everybody else. Me too, thank you. <laughs> Brian, thank you so, so much for sharing those insights. You know, hurricanes are really complex. They're multi-hazard. 
phenomenon. And so I'm really excited that you're looking into how to better communicate those risks with the public. Well, another professional we had that flew in from Miami was Jamie Rome, the deputy director of the National Hurricane Center. I was really impressed by this short interview with Jamie because he shared about new products and new services that the National Hurricane Center is providing this season. But I love that he also shared some personal anecdotes. He talks about how he personally prepares for hurricanes. I love that personal message. It didn't feel really formal or rigid. He was sharing some insights on how he and his family prepare for hurricane season, which I think will apply to everybody that listens to this broadcast. We're here with Jamie Rome, director or deputy, deputy director of the National Hurricane Center. Thanks for taking time to come on the broadcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Jamie, you made some changes. One of the big changes is having this seven-day outlook. Could you explain a little bit about that? So the outlook is the product that we use to talk about uh, disturbances or seedling systems that may develop into a tropical storm or a hurricane. We've historically provided a five-day outlook, so you know, forecast out to five days. Now we're extending that to, to seven days to give more heads up in lead time. You know, as mentioned at the conference here, even with the seven-day outlook, a lot of times you only really, science only gives you a couple days from when this develops into maybe a tropical storm or hurricane until it's making landfall on the coast anyway, right? Yeah, and that's why we, you know, we really preach to people that you have to check into the forecast often. So maybe some people only look once a day or once every other day, uh, but when a system is threatening your community, you have to really challenge yourself to check the weather every six hours. Jamie, something the participants here really appreciated was you talking about the multi-hazards and how the National Hurricane Center provides technology for people to overlay that. Could you explain a little bit about that? A lot of people look solely at the cone, or you know, the infamous cone, and that only provides you a snapshot of, of the overall impact of the community. We really need people to look at these newer products that dig into the rainfall, storm surge, wind, and tornado impacts really thinking more in a multi-hazard approach. Yeah, unfortunately, hurricanes are complicated. I, I wish they weren't. Um, and if you're in a hurricane-prone area, there there is no shortcut to hurricanes. I, I wish they were. So challenging people to take that next step and look at more than just the cone. Jimmy, what's one last take-home message you would share with the public out there just that they should be thinking about going into this hurricane season? It sounds cliche, um, but I'm telling you, after 25 years of doing this, the residents who prepare ahead of time do the best after one of these big hurricanes. I guess both through the storm, but even probably in the recovery afterwards, right? Yeah, because it's the little things that get people. For example, um, if you wait and procrastinate to the last minute, the lines are long, uh, supplies are out, try getting a prescription renewed, you know, with a hurricane bearing down on you, it just, it just, your life is really complicated if you try to do it all at last minute. That's a good point. If you get that stuff done ahead of time, the day before the storm, you can take care of those last minute essentials, or, or I shouldn't even say the day before, just as, as it's approaching, you can, you're ahead of the game, right? You're going to have a better response. I keep my prescriptions renewed several months in advance, uh, just so that, you know, I don't have to deal with that in a hurricane threat. I keep all of my supplies right where I can find them. I, I test everything in May. Uh, you know, replenish batteries. Batteries go bad. Um, I make sure everything I need is is where I can find it quickly. And then when a, when we're threatened, and in South Florida was threatened by Ian, it's it's much easier to execute. Yeah, you're way ahead of the game, and that's something that people can do right now to start preparing for this upcoming season. Yeah, you trust me. You do not want to be in that long line at you know a hardware store or uh, fighting over the last bit of water at, at uh, the grocery store. 
Amy, thank you so much for everything that you shared here at this conference, for being involved, and let's hope for a safe hurricane season. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you, Jamie, for sharing those insights. It's always encouraging to hear new products that the National Hurricane Center is making available. And again, thanks for sharing your personal insights. Well, I was really happy at this conference to see a few professionals that are focused on how we can build better. Sometimes I'll talk to friends and family and and just people in the public about my research and about hurricane communication. And sometimes I'll say, well, what can we do about this anyway? You can't stop a storm from coming. Well, that's true. You can't stop a storm from hitting your community, but there are some things we can do to get out ahead of these storms and prepare and build better. And so I was really excited to be able to interact with a few professionals that do that. The first one is Julie Rochman. She is the former CEO of the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety, or IBHS. We've featured them on the podcast before, but I love Julie's concise viewpoint. She's direct, she's to the point, and she points out a few very critical things that people need to think about as far as how to build better in hurricane country. Here's a little bit of my interview with Julie. We're here at the National Tropical Weather Conference with Julie Rochman, former CEO of the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety. Thank you so much for coming on the interview here. Thanks, Hal. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, This is an amazing conference. We bring in specialists, experts, scientists, practitioners from all over the place. I know a lot of people really loved your presentation about how to build better, how to get out ahead of these storms and, and better prepare. What are some insights you have to share with our listeners? Well, so first of all, I I want people to understand that Mother Nature can overwhelm the best engineering, but there are things that we can do to reduce the possibility of losing your entire house or massive destruction. It typically starts with the roof. If we could just get the roofs right in this country, doesn't matter what the code is, there are things you can do to make sure that your roof is put on right and done right. We could probably reduce losses every year from hurricanes by about 40 to 50%. So that's the biggest investment that people should be making. What are, what's some opposition you hear to that? Like, are people concerned about cost? When people think about having a better roof, what are some concerns they have? I think sadly the first objection we usually hear is my neighbors aren't going to be impressed. If I put the money in my kitchen, I can have people over and I can show them my beautiful new kitchen. If I put a roof on, nobody sees it, nobody's impressed. It's a lot of money that's not really fun to spend but it is really, really important to keeping that kitchen nice. Because if the roof comes off or the water gets in, that brand new kitchen's gonna be ruined. So from a practical aspect, if you take care of the roof, you're really taking care of your house and that affects everything, right? That's true. What you really wanna do is keep the whole house or the envelope of the house, as we call it, together because you have a lot of precious things inside that house that you want to be there when the storm passes. Julie, you shared a little bit about the Fortified program. Could you share with our listeners what that's all about? So building codes impact new buildings or substantially rebuilt buildings. Fortified is a beyond code program or standard that is strictly about resilience. And it's something that can be applied to new builds as well as retrofitting existing homes that may have been built before codes that are strong and well enforced were put in place. That makes a lot of sense. We've seen a lot of really major hurricane activity in recent years, a lot of category four hurricanes. What did, what did you learn and what do you think the industry learned from Hurricane Ian last year? We've had enough houses built to our fortified resilience standard that after these storms, we can go out and actually see the difference between houses that were built to withstand the storm versus homes that were not. And the evidence is overwhelming that resilient construction, elevating and tying the pieces of the house together works. It just works. Well, that's a good point. I know South Alabama has a fair number of fortified homes, and they said after Category 2, upper Category 2, Hurricane Sally several years ago, the fortified homes did exceptionally well. 
It's, it's amazing, and it's very gratifying to see people who ride out a hurricane or they evacuate and come back, and their home is still there, and all of their possessions are still there, and it's in good shape. We've had, unfortunately, too many real-world tests of fortified construction, but in each and every case, the fortified homes have proven their worth. Julie, what should people think about multiple hazards if they live in an area with maybe wind and flood or, or wind and fire? I mean, how should people think about that? So when it comes to flood, you have two choices, elevate or get out of the way. When it comes to wind, wind is wind, whether it's a derecho, the edges of a tornado, a tropical storm, the wind is going to try to pressurize your house and blow it up. It wants to get inside and blow up the house like a balloon. So no matter where you live, if there, if there are going to be wind events, you want to make sure that your windows are well installed, that your roof is tied to the walls, the walls are tied to each other, then the bottom of the walls are tied to the foundation, that your doors, including your garage door, which is a huge potential opening, can't be breached. So keeping that exterior shell together of the home, it's like a self-defense, like a safety cage for your home. Julie, have you seen an annual cycle, like a certain time of the year when people want to do improvements or are more resistant to do improvements? I've heard of people in Texas saying, I'm not going to put any money into my roof in the summer because if there's a hurricane, then insurance will pay for it. How should people think about that annual cycle or give us insight into that? Yeah, I, I grew up in Nebraska and there were spring convective storms almost every year. And people would say, oh, I'm not going to put a new roof on because the insurance company is going to do it for me as soon as the next, you know, hailstorm comes through. That's the wrong way to think about it. Whenever you can put a roof on, or if you're re-roofing already, go online and look to see the little teeny upgrades that may cost you an extra few hundred dollars, but will make all the difference in the world. But that's something you can do all year round. And of course, you're also subject to when roofers are busy. So if you wait until after the storm, the quality roofers aren't going to be able to get to you. Julie, what are uh, several key resources that our listeners can look for online and educate themselves? Well, I would start with the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety. It's IBHS.org. They also have another site called Fortified.org. There's another organization, which I happen to be on the board of, called Smart Home America. And Smart Home America came out of Hurricane Katrina. They have a terrific website, as does the Federal Alliance for Safe Homes, or FLASH. And, of course, there are lots of resources that the federal government and state governments provide as well. Julie, thank you so much for sharing this with our listeners. Thanks for coming to the conference, and let's hope for a safe hurricane season. Thanks, Al. I share your hope. Julie, thank you so much for sharing those insights. I thought that's really interesting how people don't picture investing in a roof as fun money, right? They want to invest sometimes in something that's fun, like an in-ground swimming pool, granite countertops in their kitchen. But Julie makes a good point. If you lose your roof in a hurricane, all those fun investments go to waste anyway. Uh, Really good insights there. Well, keeping with the Building Better theme, there's another woman that I was able to meet for the first time at the conference and really enjoyed her presentation as well as the interview that we did. Leslie Henderson is the president and CEO of Flash or the Federal Alliance for Safe Homes. They're doing a lot of initiatives to engage with people, help them build better. And what stood out to me about Leslie is that they're engaging creatively and a lot of times having fun with what they're doing. They actually took this message to Disney World. People said, you can't bring a disaster message to Disney. It's the Magic Kingdom. People just want to have fun. They don't want to think about hurricanes. Her team proved them wrong. And they had a lot of engagement from families at Disney, found creative, appropriate ways to engage and and talk with people. And that was just a really cool part of her presentation. I think you'll enjoy this interview that I did with Leslie about how her team works to educate and prepare people for storms. Well, Leslie, here we are at the National Tropical Weather Conference. I know you're presentation was a big hit of and you've been at this conference for quite a while so far right yes for several years since they started i think that's great so you're with the federal alliance for safe homes could you tell us a little bit about how that got started and and what y'all do 
Sure, so in the post-Hurricane Andrew years after 1992, a very small group of very relevant organizations came together that talked about disaster safety. We all had primary duties. Mine was in the insurance industry, the Hurricane Center in forecast, the Red Cross in response, but the question that organized our committee was, who is gonna make sure that we don't build it back the same way and, and stand up a community only to have it be destroyed again? So we kind of looked at it as a cycle that we wanted to break, breaking the build, destroy, rebuild cycle. So after we came together as a committee, um, we found that we were fulfilling an unmet need and we organized as a nonprofit in 1998. What were the main challenges at that time to get people to think about building better? Well, one of our purposes for existing is to bring this issue of caring how your home is built beyond just the two obvious stakeholders, insurance and FEMA, obviously because they're there afterwards at a high value for how important it is. However, homeowners weren't thinking about it, home builders weren't thinking about it, and I'm not even sure how well the weather community understood it themselves. So our job is to bring the issue out, create a social value, and then help people understand what the solutions are. You know, after Andrew, actually things were relatively quiet in the 90s, but then all of a sudden 2004 stands out to us at a year when there were four hurricane landfalls in the state of Florida. At what point did you really start to see, wow, what we're doing is making a difference? Well, it's funny you mentioned 2004. So in 1992, when we went out and looked at, and there's always a story out of every disaster in terms of building performance. So in 1992, we saw that the way that we constructed and attached our roofs to the walls was, was not working. The gable end wall is not a good fit for a tropical setting because in a high wind event, it's gonna go, and it did hundreds of thousands of homes were damaged that way. So we made changes through advocacy in our group to the building code and changed the way we build and attach roofs to walls in Florida. So fast forward to Charlie, our initial take on the Charlie experience was pretty jubilant. We saw the roofs were still intact. So that was a huge win. It was also a very key point in validating the building code itself. We had pretty hard-won um, exchanges on a public policy basis to get the new building codes in place. It was not easy. There was opposition. But when Charlie came along, all the homes built in the post-2002 permitting era, those homes stood out. And, and we actually came up with a cornerstone story that we've used ever since called the tale of two homes. The home built right, and the home not you know not built to modern model code. So the the idea of that is not just the story of the home, but the family inside. What are their lives like? What does that recovery tale look like? How much faster can they bounce back and get on with their lives? So and I'm glad you mentioned that it's not only protecting your life possibly during a storm, but that recovery process afterwards. Well, right now we're looking at a, an epic challenge with Hurricane Ian, for example. We've got 26 counties in Florida out of 67 that were declared federal disaster areas, and the recovery tale on this one, it's very, very long. Leslie, I had a question. I had heard of the building code called the South Florida Building Code. And then from my understanding, and you're, you're an expert in this, so you can help our listeners understand. Um, when Hurricane Michael came, that was more closer to the Big Ben and the Florida Panhandle. And I heard some people say, well, some of those Andrew codes did not originally apply in the Panhandle and other parts of the state. Did the South Florida Code eventually spread statewide? Could you kind of walk us through that process? So South Florida was leading 
on the building code issues. And the first wave of um, reform happened with the so-called unified code in 2001 and things permitted after that time and built after 2002, but there were exceptions. The Panhandle is one of those places where there was a bit of a carve out along the coastline put forth by the notion, incorrectly, that the Panhandle would never confront a storm like Andrew. But I served on several of the legislative task forces and I often serve in a consumer role and we were very outspoken about those exceptions. We got them removed in 2007 and so homes built in the panhandle where the exception was um, up until the July of 2007 didn't enjoy all the protections of the original South Florida code. The code is an evolving target. And that's a good thing because we learn so much after the storm. We have to take those learnings, put them into the next version of the code, then we got to get it adopted, enforced, get everybody trained and move from there. It sounds like some of this progress is step by step. It sounds like Hurricane Charlie 2004, you're seeing some progress, but still some ways to go. How does looking back at Ian compare to looking back at Charlie, a similar landfall point, both upper level category four storms, how are you seeing differences? Well, this there's no end state for resilience. It's a perpetual, it's never good enough because we always can learn and we can always do better. But I will tell you, in the early and very um, convincing, um, really kind of indisputable findings after Hurricane Ian, the Florida building codes were applied, especially along the coast, they work. So from a wind standpoint, it's a success story. Now we have obvious challenges with elevation, but even in some cases, the forensic engineering after the event found that the properly elevated, more modern homes built to the high wind code, they survived. And again, what it comes back to is what does that mean for those families, for that employer or that employee and all those people. You know, we have life interrupted right now for a lot of people in Florida and it's going to be that way for some time. Unfortunately, life interrupted is most often impacting those with the least amount of economic support and resources. So anything we can do to, to boost the bounce back and that's how we build, that's what, that's what we're after. Leslie, I was amazed seeing Category 4 winds in the Punta Gorda area north of Fort Myers, and a lot of the roofs did surprisingly well with those better building codes. So we can actually, you know, see the results of this work in in the field when we go out after a storm. Well, it's kind of exciting to see. So after Hurricane Charlie, our Tale of Two Homes story was started with a comparison of two homes in Punta Gorda Isles, a 1964 model across the street, a 2003 new home. One home intact, a little bit of, you know, pool screen flapping, otherwise perfectly intact. The 1964 home exploded. The the roof peeled off, the refrigerator, they became so pressurized, the refrigerator blew through the the back window into the canal, and the dwellers of that home crawled through glass to save their lives to the other home. We took that story and, and made it emblematic. We also rebuilt that older home with Bob Vila, in 2005, and that home, every time we have a storm, we follow Jim and Teresa. Their home came through Ian beautifully. They have a solid, well-built home, and they're really an example and a role model for what we're after. Well, that's a great example to actually follow a specific home that people can follow through time. In your presentation, you mentioned something called Inspect to Protect, right? Could you share with our listeners a little bit about what that is? Well, in this whole world, there's really two things we're after. One, build it right the first time, but if you have that older home, you need to fix it up. Well, how do you begin? You have to know how your home was built, and that's 
decoding your building codes. So inspectorprotect.org is a transparency solution that is free where you can go put in your address or your zip code and figure out what was the rule book used to build your home. And what we also will give you is the commensurate recommendations on things that maybe they weren't in the code yet when your house was built. And these are things you can think about to make it stronger. It's based on two years of pretty intense research, focus groups, and quantitative research, and understanding how people understood or didn't maybe understand building code. So we're trying to change that by providing these tools. Well, that empowers people too to kind of look back and understand more about their home, how it was built, and how it could protect them. You also mentioned um, knowing your, like where you're located as far as building codes or maybe even um, your zone, where, geographically where you are. How, what should people think about that? Well, safety is always first, right? So the key to safety is understanding whether or not you need to evacuate. And of course, as we know, we want to run from the water. If you're in a storm surge evacuation zone, you need to know it. And you have to have a plan for where you're going to go. It doesn't have to be too far away, but you need to figure all those things out during what we call blue sky times, when things are calm, and then you make a plan, maybe with a friend or a relative, say, I'm coming to you. And one of the things, again, transparency solution. People are like, how do I find out if I'm in a storm surge zone? So we have assets at hurricanestrong.org where we help people with checklists. That's what they want. What do I need to do? Where do I go to learn? Who are the trusted sources? And that's what we're in the business to provide. And like you said, if we can provide that ahead of time when the weather's fair, it gives people time without pressure to kind of get all their ducks in a row, right? Absolutely. But the other part to this is we know through our research and science, we cannot scare people into taking the right steps. We need to make it part of a lifestyle and something that people feel comfortable doing. So we make things a little bit fun when there's no threat and a little bit something the whole family can get together and do. And, and so if you want to be hurricane strong, it talks about how to get ready, but then it talks about, hey, and then we can go out and volunteer. We can help an elderly neighbor. We can feel good. We can build kits and donate them. So we worked with Disney for eight years. We were in Epcot. We had storms struck a tale of two homes. In Disney, we learned a great deal about how powerful storytelling is and how compelling it is to helping people feel like, I can be the hero of my own storm story, and you have to empower them, and the rest just takes care of itself. That's right. When you give them knowledge and, a, and an action plan, it does certainly empower them and give them hope for better protection in the future. Leslie, what's one last thing that you'd want to share with our listeners? You know, one last take home as, as we end the interview here. Well, don't spend any time without knowing what you need to do without calling us or get going to flash.org or any of our sites and, and asking the question. We are a small organization backed by 100 plus of the most brilliant academic research and other partners in all the fields relevant to this. If you need a question answered, we'll get it for you. Thank you, Leslie. Hoping you to have a safe hurricane season and thanks for sharing with our listeners. Thank you. Leslie, thank you so much for sharing those insights. It's always great to see how we can build better and get out ahead of these storms so we can mitigate losses. Well, our last guest here was actually a guest on the virtual conference last year, Derek Herndon. He's a research associate with the University of Wisconsin, and his focus is really satellite meteorology as related to hurricanes and tropical storms. You know, the hurricane hunters are really important. We fly into hurricanes the best we can, but satellites are up there looking down 24 hours a day, and they can really collect this information, especially getting out farther from the, the U.S. coastline, right? How do you know what's going on off the coast of Africa or deep in the Caribbean? 
A lot of times we're relying on satellite data. Derek shares some interesting insights and innovations going on in that field of satellite meteorology, which is so incredibly important for forecasting hurricanes. We're here at the National Tropical Weather Conference with Derek Herndon, Research Associate at University of Wisconsin. Thanks so much for taking time to do an interview. I think I appreciate it. Yep. It's been a great conference. I know a lot of people loved your talk on kind of the history of satellite technology for tropical cyclone forecasting and hurricane forecasting. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into that, how long you've been doing that research? Uh, well, I got into it really in my Navy career because uh, when, you're, when you're on a ship at sea, really satellite is very, very key for forecasting. So a lot of the operations we did required satellite imagery. I kind of got, became an expert on that. And then it was just a natural progression to, uh, to, to kind of take that to the next level, studying tropical cyclones. So once I got out of the Navy, I went to the University of Wisconsin, and they have a great history there of, uh, of working with satellite data, huge archives, so it was a very natural, very natural fit for me. Eric, I know researchers and forecasters all over the world use data from the University of Wisconsin. Could you tell us a little bit about that program? How long have they been putting out satellite data for hurricane forecasting? Yeah, so the, really this, the University of Wisconsin, the Space Science and Engineering Center, is kind of the, the founder there, Vern Sumi really developed some of the technology that made the satellite imagery that we have now like viewable and made this really, really cool feature that allowed us to do animations. So really, there's a, a history of decades worth of uh, satellite processing and even some instrument development there. So we have a huge archive, many decades of geostationary, polar satellites, all kinds of satellite data that we can use for tropical cyclone analysis. Derek, a lot of people at the conference really loved your your presentation where you were talking about the Dvorak technique. Could you explain to our listeners briefly kind of what that means, what that is, and why it's so important? Yeah, so uh, Vern Dvorak developed this technique in the 70s, and we're still using it today. It is still it is still the, the workhorse for satellite analysis. It's really incredible what he was able to do with that. Basically just looking at satellite images and coming up with this pattern recognition, which is kind of what machine learning and AI does now, but, but he did this as a human, looking at thousands and thousands of images and developed this technique and it's used throughout the world for satellite analysis. And up until, up until even today, really no other algorithm has been able to beat it. You know, in the Atlantic Basin, we fly into a lot of hurricanes with the hurricane hunters. and a lot of other basins, they don't. Have you heard people say, like, satellite data may be more important in other basins? Or, or, it, or is it equally important kind of everywhere? I would say it's pretty important everywhere. But, but there are these other ocean basins where that's really all that they have. So they, they rely very heavily on the development of these algorithms to tell them the hurricane's intensity and the structure of the storm and that that data goes into the computer models and they can use that for forecasting so about you know 80 to 90 percent of the world that's all they have access to is satellite data. Derek you've been doing a lot of work with the CubeSat program could you explain to us what that's about? Yeah so CubeSats are very small uh, satellites about the size of a loaf of bread and uh, the nice thing about these are is they're fairly cheap to build we can launch many of them so when we build a satellite, it's very, very expensive. We can only launch one. It might only pass over the storm twice per day. CubeSats, we can build a bunch of them, and we can get a lot more passes over the storm, up to a uh, resolution of about every hour or so. So it's going to provide us a lot more data. Um, one of the missions I'm working on is the Tropics mission. That launches in May. We're going to launch two satellites and then launch another two satellites in June. How many different satellites do you work with? I mean, I know, I know there are a lot of different satellites up there. Could you kind of give an overview? Oh boy, uh, I, dozens, <laughs> dozens of satellites. So looking at all types of the electromagnetic spectrum. So infrared satellites, visible satellites, microwave spectrum. Um, again, it's kind of an all-in approach. We really want to have all of these different frequencies 
and different types of satellites to look at different aspects of the storm. Derek, are you mostly working with polar orbiting satellites? Do you get data from like geostationary as well? Uh, we get data from both polar orbiting and geostationary. Uh, my primary work focuses on the polar orbiting uh, side of things, working with the microwave data, but we also incorporate that information uh, with kind of these uh, approaches that kind of blend all that information into one, and that includes the geostationary data as well. Even though a lot of your work is so useful for hurricanes, I know you're working 365 days a year on this stuff. What does it look like if there's a major hurricane, say, in the Gulf? I mean, does your workload and, and, and really time schedule look different? It definitely becomes uh, more busy because um, we know that a lot of eyes are on the storm. And I have family that live in the Gulf, the Gulf region. So, you know, my family's from the Tampa area. So, you know, I have one eye on the storm as a scientist, but I'm also thinking about my family, providing information for them. Um, whenever there's a storm that's threatening land, we also get a lot of interest on our website. So we, uh, we definitely need to monitor that, make sure that all our products are up to date and that we have the capacity to meet the uh, public's needs for information. Derek, with hurricane season coming up, what's one take-home message you'd give to, to people watching this interview? Uh, listen to the warnings. You know, uh, communication is always a challenge with these storms, as we've seen during this conference. It's, it's been a subject that we talked about quite a bit. Um, so definitely listen to the warnings and just, you know, remember, even if it seems like it's a quiet season, it, it only takes one, one storm. Derek, thank you so much for doing an interview. Great to interact with you at, at the conference and hoping you uh, have a safe and productive hurricane season. All right, thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Derek, for sharing those insights. You know, it's interesting. You're up there at the University of Wisconsin. I've gone on your website quite a bit to uh, look at satellite meteorology related to hurricanes. Sometimes people are surprised that folks up in Wisconsin or places like Colorado State University are doing tropical research. But again, when it comes to satellite meteorology, you don't have to be in the tropics to do great work. And Derek and his team have proven that. Always great to get an update on what's going on in your field. Hey, well, everyone, thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. It was very insightful. I learned a lot. I'm hoping you did as well. Can't believe that hurricane season is fast approaching. We're hoping for a safe hurricane season for everybody. And again, a way that you can do that, like Jamie Rome shared, just to be prepared. It's going to go much better for you if you fill those prescriptions ahead of time, get those non-perishable foods, test your batteries. All that is stuff that we can do in the springtime. So when hurricane season is upon us, you don't have to wait in those long lines. And obviously, like Julie and Leslie said, there are ways that we can build better. There are ways that we can get out ahead of this. And that also is work that we can do year round as well. So really great stuff. Again, go to hurricanecenterlive.com and find out the schedule. The National Tropical Weather Conference will be with you virtually. I'll be on the science panel this year and I'll be with you almost every week. Sometimes if I'm out there in the middle of a hurricane, it's a little hard to, to tune in, but it's a great community and it's something that you can be a part of. You can ask questions in real time from experts like Derek, who was on the conference last year. If you have questions about how satellites work or anything like that, you can, you can engage with our experts through the season. Everyone, hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. It's always a pleasure to be here as your podcast host. And we'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast when I think we may be going back to California to look at how that snow melt is going and building better. I know we were there in the last episode. Now we switch to the tropics. I think we may be going back to California at some point soon. So we like to mix it up, like to keep it exciting and active. Again, we're engaging extreme weather and natural disasters around the world. Here with GeoTrek, we're really looking at understanding the meteorology and understanding the science behind these events, understanding their impacts, and also understanding ways that we can get out ahead of them to mitigate and reduce losses. Everyone have a great day. This is Hurricane Hal signing off, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast.